This is Mark Stein. Winter is a big blah, so it's time to get out of town with the ultimate cabin fever reliever. Join me on the 2024 Mark Stein Caribbean Cruise, sailing from Florida to the Bahamas, Jamaica, the Caymans, and Mexico for a full week of sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. I'll have special guests from around the world, from America, Canada, Britain, Europe, the House of Lords. And we'll do all the things you like about the Mark Stein Show and Stein Online, but close up and on water. More details at steinonline.com or marksteincruise.com. The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. January 26th, 2024, in America's diseased and depraved capital city. It is 3 p.m. Deep State Standard Time, 4 p.m. in the beautiful Canadian Maritimes, 4.30 p.m. in fabulous Newfoundland. And beyond the Americas, 8 p.m. in London and Dublin, 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev. Oh, I can't turn anymore. And Tel Aviv. 11 p.m. in Yemen. For all you hooties, hooty hooting out there, I wish I could hooty hoot still. 11.30 p.m. in Tehran. For all you Newfoundlanders who moved to Iran for the half-hour time zone, 1.45 a.m. in Kathmandu. For all you Iranians who moved to Nepal to check out the quarter-hour time zone, 4 a.m. in Singapore and Honkers. Sorry about that. 7 a.m. in Sydney and Melbourne. Still kind of sorry about that. 9 a.m. in Auckland. A far more convivial hour for the Kippers and Kedgeree. And even deeper into Thursday in His Majesty's Dominions across the Pacific, where my trial is probably over by now. And you're all laughing at the guilty verdict. Uh, greetings. Uh, not uh, Thursday, is it? It's uh, Saturday. We're not going backwards, are we? I certainly hope not, because I don't want to relive Thursday again. Uh, but greetings from my Washington hotel room at the end of my second week in America's capital. I am heartily sick of the room service menu because uh, when I get back from, uh, if you think I'm dining in fancy Georgetown restaurants every night, it's all I can do to get from the hotel was picked uh, because all you do uh, when you're in a big trial like this, or even a small trial really, it just eat, especially if it's not where you live, it just eats up your life. So you go from your lodgings to the courtroom, from the courtroom to the lodgings. But I am heartily sick of the room service menu. And uh, the rigors of this awful trial are taking their toll, but I'm going to try to go the distance today. Enviable headline from the Daily Mail. Trump storms out of court. 
Yeah, I wish I were capable of that, but I'm not doing a lot of storming. Man versus Simberg and Stein in the sweat box of courtroom 518 at the District of Columbia Superior Court. I'm a heart patient. Three heart attacks. A heart patient being forced to sit for eight hours a day in an airless, windowless room where the temperature controls broke down uh, some days ago and the thermometer is climbing to 90. Uh, as I remarked somewhat testily to the judge at the close of proceedings yesterday, I thought you guys had a constitutional prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment. But as with so many other aspects of the US Constitution, it seems to be more honored in the breach. We will resume Monday at 9.30 a.m. Don't forget, coming up in March at the High Court of England, King's Bench Division, hopefully, in a non-sweatbox courtroom, it's Stein versus Ofcom. And in between those twin trials of the century, uh, we should have just enough time to squeeze in the Mark Stein Caribbean crew. So why not treat yourself to a stateroom thereon? Like the man said, it's a weaker sun, sea, and civilizational collapse. With Ava Vallardingerbrook, Conrad Black, Leilani Dowding, Bo Snudley, Michelle Buckman, who has been with me in that miserable sweat box of a DC courtroom all this week and has been very kindly pushing my wheelchair to the car uh, so I can get the hell out of there at the end of each day. Michelle is always a big hit on our cruise. She's absolutely wonderful company, as you'll discover if you go to MarkSteinCruise.com and book your passage. If you're thinking, oh, it's, but isn't it the height of primary season? You won't be missing a thing. Uh, primaries are over. The nomination process is over. This week, Trump became the first candidate ever to win both Iowa and New Hampshire with over 50% of the vote. So it's all down to the deep state to get him off the ballot now, one way or another. Uh, speaking of which, 45 years ago today, January 26th, 1979, former Vice President Nelson Rockefeller suffered a fatal heart attack while at his townhouse in Manhattan with a 25-year-old female aide. Uh, he didn't die with his boots on. Uh, she had to get a friend round to help put them back on. There are worse ways to go. Okay, let us get to your questions. First one up, Steve from Manhattan. I don't know, he may well live in uh, the, the uh, same townhouse that Nelson Rockefeller uh, came a cropper in. Uh, I'm not sure. He's just Steve from Manhattan, and he says, Mark, I will see you in court, doesn't everybody? Uh, having watched on WebEx for six days, this is the DC Superior Court lame stream you can tune in on. I think they have three fixed shots of uh, uh, the witness box, uh, one of the judge's shoulders, and then a kind of wide shot. Um, Mark, I will see you in court. Having watched on WebEx for six days, I've given in to the feverish temptation to get the full 90-degree roasting in person. Question, if there is a replacement on Monday for a cursed room 518, how long before you start channeling Dorothy Parker's line? What fresh hell is this? 
I regret that Quartz High, the Supremes in 2019, and Low, DC Superior Court for the last 12 years, have abandoned their duty, sworn duty, to the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> I usually do it like Mark Levin does and call it the Constitutitution. I got choked halfway through there. Uh, I am praying for your restoration uh, to good health and for the jury to deliver a miracle of fairness. Thank you for that, Steve. Um, yeah, <laughs> you always uh, learn a lot more about the U.S. Constitution than you ever wanted to when you find yourself in a uh, in a in a courtroom. I would just make a you know, conservatives spend a lot of energy trying to uh, get. Uh, conservative judges onto the Supreme Court. And as we know, in recent days, two of them, the Chief Justice John Roberts and Amy uh, Comey Barrett, uh, voted with the so-called three lefties uh, to deny the governor of Texas the right to enforce the border of his state, uh, given that the uh, federal government is not enforcing the international border of that state, and I would certainly support that. If we, if you know, I live in a state that uh, has a border with another country, and uh, if uh, I had, if we had a thousandth of the people coming across that border that uh, the state of Texas has, I would certainly think we had the right to. Uh, take it into our own hands. And yet, you know, what's the famous line about the US Constitution? The Constitution is not a suicide note. Well, two so-called conservative judges just joined with the lefties to help make it a suicide note. Uh, because basically, if you don't have, a, as we always say, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. Um, and I think it, uh, part of this is the limitations of depending on the, the conservative strategy for really, you know, over 30 years now of depending on uh, judges, basically getting five judges onto that court to counter everything else in the nation. Five judges are going to save you from the education system. They're going to save you from the media. They're going to save you from the lower courts. They're going to save you uh, from the entertainment industry. Uh, they're going to save you from the mainstream churches. And they're going to save you from the broader culture. Five judges. Is that actually remotely plausible? <laughs> I mean, in a democratic era, and at this point, you know, uh, all the Americans listening to this are jumping up and down saying, Sammy, you don't know we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic. No one's a democracy in the way your constitution waivers mean it. Canada isn't a democracy, it's a constitutional monarchy. All free societies, to one degree or another, are mediated uh, democracies unless you have something like the Swiss system, uh, where 
you have uh, a lot of direct referendums and they change uh, the president every 20 minutes and 80% of Swiss people cannot name their president because that's how unimportant he is. I'd love to live in a country like that. Uh, and uh, uh, what was I saying? Oh yeah, I'm saying, so don't do the, oh, we're not a democracy, we're a constitutional republic. That kind of bollocks has cost you your country. Uh, as I said, all free societies are mediated democracies, whether they're constitutional republics or constitutional monarchies or monarchical republics such as France's. So uh, there's no point. Uh, there's, there's no point bleating about that. The five judges, um, Chief Justice John Roberts, appointed by George W. Bush. And almost as soon as he'd got there, he decided, I had talked about this, uh, I forget what show I was hosting on Fox, but we had dear Shannon Bream on, uh, who is the Supreme Court correspondent for Fox, among, any, among many other things. And I, uh, I, Shannon is just a terrific person, and she's very sharp on... Uh, court matters and we I can't remember what uh, betrayal of the week that was by John Roberts that we were talking about but her whole point was that John Roberts uh, his main goal is to protect the court for, uh, and not for it to become uh, politically controversial because he thinks that will damage the court's reputation. And so after Shannon had explained that, I said, but when you basically punt in order to avoid the court becoming politically controversial, isn't that in itself an act of political <laughs> controversy? Uh, because you're basically dodging all the big questions that people have uh, come to look for these five judges to make the big decisions on. And uh, Shannon and I had some back and forth on that. And I think about what she said uh, from time to time, usually every time one of these idiot judgments uh, comes down. And I'm not so sure, actually. I mean, what's happened with Amy Comey, Comey Barrett is, you know, you can't... <laughs> as uh, the late Diane Feinstein said to whoever it was uh, in that uh, channeling Yoda in Star Wars or whatever it was meant to be, the dogma is very strong in you. <laughs> May the dogma be with you. And that's what all the conservatives say. Whenever they get a judge onto the Supreme Court, may the dogma be with you. And the dogma dissolves in nothing flat. And next thing you know, the, uh, the, uh, this judge and that judge are all reaching across the aisle, as the politicians say. And actually, the likelihood, as these big questions become, uh, become more and more radical, the likelihood of five guys standing against hundreds of millions of, the, of, of their fellow Americans' dispositions becomes ever more remote. You've got to be out there fighting in the real world. You can't look to legalisms to save you. I'm in a courtroom where that whole thing is going on right now. I can't bloody stand it. Uh, I can't stand it. But you can't look to, th there's a reason for the veneration of the US Constitution. You know, 
I think I've said this before, but I think it's not it's not worth getting overly invested in constitutionalism as a replacement for reality. The veneration of the U.S. Constitution, which is kind of more or less unique on the planet, because uh, in other uh, you know, in the system you broke away from, the state is the king. That's it. The king is the state. The king is all three branches of government. Uh, the uh, executive branch is the king in council. The uh, legislative branch is the king in parliament. And the judicial branch is the king on the bench. That's the way it is in Canada. Uh, and you, you by... by uh, getting rid of the king, you had a big hole uh, in terms of the legal personality of the state. Uh, so you replace it with the Constitution, you take an oath to the Constitution, Canadians uh, take an oath to the king. Um, but in the end, in the end, you can't, the Constitution does not float in the air without reality to prop it up. And so uh, you look at these five human beings. Now, the three lefties who d decided that uh, Governor Abbott was not allowed to enforce his own state's border with Mexico, uh, they want open borders because it's destroying America. It will destroy the American inheritance, and that's what the left has decided they want. But the two others are just kind of going along to get along because that's the way it requires superhuman strength of character for five judges to stand up against hundreds of millions. I'm just making a general observation here. Uh, but I thank you for that question. Steve probably went too long on that, but I, uh, I did in... in uh, Enjoy it. It's uh, it was an interesting. I, I I think about these things as anyone would if they were in my uh, present uh, situation. These last uh, couple of uh, weeks. Let's see what. Oh, we got a ton of. I didn't realize we had all these comments and questions uh, about uh, various aspects of the trial. Uh, ball bounces in PEI says they can't air condition a room but they want to run our lives to save the planet. The trial should be held in the produce room at Costco on Market Street Northeast in Washington, D.C. That's another good point. Uh, you know, the, these, these uh, judges have the gift of a citizen's liberty in their hands. As we know from January 6th, uh, there are judges all over Washington, D.C. and in other parts of America who uh, basically have sentenced people to, what is it now, three years, three years in solitary uh, for uh, doing a bit of trespassing in the people's house at the invitation of the completely uh, inept, corrupt and murderous Capitol Police. So they presume to determine the liberty of the citizenry, but they can't air condition a room. As I think I said somewhere or other, um, uh, my uh, French doctor says even in America, uh, the, the uh, doctors know that a patient, uh, a heart patient, should not be in a room uh, above... Uh, 
uh, I think she said 27 Celsius, which is 80 Fahrenheit. And, and she's quite right. But, but, uh, but for some reason, the District of Columbia Superior Court has decided to up, uh, upgrade Michael E. Mann's defamation suit into a capital offense. I'm not going to survive another day. If it's if it's the temperature it was on Thursday. Evil, evil. Dan says, hi, Mark, I recommend one or two cooling vests. A lot of different styles. Amazon Prime, if you can't find them in DC. Yeah, good luck with that. I've had rather a bit of difficulty getting uh, medication and things shipped to me. It's amazing how many things are difficult in the capital city of the global hyperpower. Bart Nielsen, not his real name, perhaps. <laughs> Bart Nielsen says, hey, just went back to see if my excoriation of the doofus who posted the two pictures of you from four years apart had received a response. And I see that Mr. Climate Scientists are never wrong has deleted his post. No apology, no correction, just an Orwellian memory holding of his malicious lying. Small victory to be sure, but we have to take what we can get. Yeah, this was a guy called Ceast, C-I-E-S-T, uh, who's a big progressive. And of course, it's the right who are supposedly all the conspiracy theorists. Uh, but nevertheless, this big progressive, um, he, uh, he saw uh, the post at Stein Online, we... Uh, reposted uh, that lovely performance of Carol Wellsman with Russell Malone and the Mark Stein Show Band and a little bit of me doing the verse on What Are You Doing New Year's Eve, fabulous Frank Lesser song on New Year's Eve because it's New Year. <laughs> and, uh, and he thought that indicated that I had uh, dark hair and was leaping around the stage and yet m amazingly the day the trial opened, I had white hair and <laughs> could hardly move. Uh, and as you saw today, I, I couldn't afford the amount of Just For Men. If you can get it in white, I know the wonderful Shirley Jones when she made the sequel to The Poseidon Adventure. Shirley Jones, who is beloved as the mom in The Partridge Family and as Marion, the librarian in... Uh, the Music Man, the film of The Music Man. Lovely Shirley Jones. Uh, I interviewed her when she was <laughs> doing uh, the sequel to The Poseidon Adventure, and she'd had to have her hair dyed gray. And I thought that was, I thought that was fantastic. I thought she looked incredibly sexy with the gray hair. But I remember asking her, even though I was whatever I was, I might not even have been 20, but I remember asking her, uh, I didn't even know you could get hair color in gray. And I'm certainly pretty sure you can't get it in white. But anyway, this guy has accused me of uh, <laughs> dying my... Have you noticed how wrinkled I am too? I bet I didn't have any of that uh, when I was doing What Are You Doing New Year's Eve just uh, three weeks ago. And of course, everybody immediately uh, prompted him and said, actually... That's a four-year-old television show. Uh, this guy had accused me of dyeing my hair white. It's a four-years-old television show. So now he's done rather like with Michael E. Mann when the uh, director of the Noble Institute told him to knock it off 
with his lies about being a Nobel laureate. He's just sort of airbrushed it out. So it's as if it never uh, ex uh, existed. Um, and uh, uh, Walt Trimmer says, I think you only imagined how hot it was in the courtroom. The tree ring thermostat read an anomaly of uh, minus one Celsius. Yeah, that's right. I believe NOAA, whatever it is, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has already begun what they call adjusting the readings from the temperature in courtroom 518. Chris Davis says, Mark, congratulations on surviving another week in DC and for your evisceration of man over, quote, that stare at Wegmans. The pet food reference will live long in the chortling memory department. Uh, you never know, you never know. Some things work with a DC jury and some things don't. Uh, Chris Davis says, how has man managed to engage in risk-free lawfare that costs him not a jot, whereas even if you win, financially you lose? I know your view of the dirty, rotten, stinking American justice system, but this is a new low. Uh, keep well, Mark. We Brits need you to take down Ofcom like you're sticking it to the man. Cheers. Yeah, that's coming up in March. So no 12 years <laughs> uh, litigating with Ofcom. Um, yeah, this is a reference to uh, the admission man made this week that he has paid not a penny in legal bills this last 12 years. He is three of the most expensive legal firms representing him in court. They've represented him for 12 years and he hasn't paid them a penny and he doesn't owe them a penny. And he, uh, he kind of sort of admitted that he thought it was more or less the same with Tim Ball, whom he lost to in court, kept dragged in court for a decade, uh, lost to in court. Uh, costs follow the event, as they say in British Columbia, and as his lawyer, Roger McConkey, admitted, uh, I know Roger McConkey. He's uh, he's a barrister, and under the English system, he knows that costs follow the event. So that Michael E. Mann was obliged to pay Tim Ball's legal fees, which at that point were over a million bucks, and he didn't. Instead, he chose to drive Tim Ball to penury and then to death. And when Tim Ball died penniless. I talked about this with Mann's co-author, Ray Bradley, who was not aware uh, because uh, Bradley and Timball were old friends going back to the pre-Mann era of climate science. And, uh, and, and uh, Bradley testified a few days ago that he was not aware that uh, Michael Mann had sued Timball over a joke. Um, it's disgusting, and I'll tell you why. Obviously, a plaintiff who's got a sugar daddy, uh, there's people who say, oh, 
we think they took it on contingency. I don't know that, but contingency, you know, in other words, you pay nothing until we win. Uh, and that's one thing if it's a traffic accident or whatever. But when it's some crap like this that goes on for 12 years, that's a proposition uh, a lot of lawyers would not be willing to entertain. But let's say a lot of people think he's being uh, bankrolled by the Union of Concerned, uh, whatever it is, it's called Union of Concerned Scientists. They're bankrolling him. A lot of people say it could be George Soros himself who's bankrolling him. But the point is this. When... Um, as someone put it to me in the last few days, when you're not paying anything for lawyers, you have no skin in the game. Again, you're, uh, you're floating free of reality. You're under no pressure to settle. What does it matter whether the case goes on for two years or 20 years? Uh, someone else is picking up the tab and you, you have no, uh, you're under no pressure to settle. No pressure to settle. And... Uh, in a sense, the problem for me is that man is a sock puppet. You're not up against the person who's driving the case, uh, who's bankrolling the case. You're up against a sock puppet of a plaintiff because some mysterious climate-obsessed sugar daddy is picking up the tab. It's one reason why I, I, I've had questions about, oh, if you lose, are you going to appeal? This is so sick that if I win, um, if they win, if they win, if Michael E. Mann wins, they're going to appeal to get uh, the big corporate defendants who've been dismissed from this case, that's the Competitive Enterprise Institute and National Review, to get them back in the case because they've got more money than I have. All I had some money 12 years ago, but the case <laughs> has drained me and my kids <laughs> of any money ever. And uh, 12 years in the dirty, stinking, rotten, corrupt American justice system will do that, but immediately uh, I lose the case. They're going to appeal, so we have to go to the D.C. Court of Appeals to start hearing their appeals about getting National Review and CEI back in uh, the case. That is how sick this uh, system is. Sick, sick, sick. Um, let us pause a moment from my legal travails. We will get to other subjects in just a moment, but let us pause for a musical interlude. A great Canadian film director died this week at the grand old age of 97, Norman Jewison. Uh, you'll know his movies, The Thomas Crown Affair with Steve McQueen, Moonstruck with Cher, The Hurricane with Denzel Washington in the heat of the night with Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. Norman Jewison uh, wasn't a Jew, despite the name. He was a Methodist. Uh, but a lot of his chums were Jews, such as uh, George Jonas and Mordecai Richler. And because they were also chums of mine, I ran into him here and there over the years. Uh, he was described in America as, quote, a Canadian pinko. 
But in the pre-Michael E. Mann era, you could have interesting conversation across the political spectrum. Uh, actually, we always talked about songs because he loved them. He produced the Judy Garland show for CBS television. And when he moved on to feature films, he knew better than almost anyone how to use a song to define character or advance a plot. And a lot of great songs, a lot of great numbers would never have been written without him. Here's one example of a song we have Norman Jewison to thank for. Uh, recalled to me on a long ago Mark Stein show by one half of the great songwriting team of Alan and Marilyn Bergman. Then the next year, uh, with the same director, in the heat of the night, marvelous director, Norman Jewison, who really understands the use of songs, not as end titles or anything, but to be part of the fabric of the screenplay. And, and certain songs of ours would never have been written without the images and the words. I mean, yeah. uh, Norman Jewison said, I want a song in the Thomas Crown Affair that... Uh, underlines the anxiety the character was feeling after robbing a bank. and uh, He didn't rob it, but he masterminded the robbery of this right. bank, and he was flying a glider, which is supposed to be a pleasurable thing, and he was very grim and anxious because he didn't know what to do with the money. And so we wrote The Windmills of Your Mind. You would never have written that song without that stimulate, without those things that stimulated us. Plus a wonderful melody. Round like a circle in a spiral, like a wheel within a wheel, never ending or beginning on a never spinning reel, like a snowball down a mountain or a carnival balloon, like a carousel that's turning, running rings around the moon, like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face. And the world is like an apple whirling silently in space Like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind Like a tunnel that you follow to a tunnel of its own Down a hollow to a cavern where the sun has never shone Like a door that keeps revolving in a half-forgotten dream Or the ripples from a pebble someone tosses in a stream Like a clock whose hands are sweeping past the minutes of its face and the world is like an apple whirling silently in space Like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind Keys that jingle in your pocket, words that jangle in your head Why did summer go so quickly? Was it something that you said? Lovers walk along the shore and leave their footprints in the sand Is the sound of distant drumming just the fingers of your hand? Pictures hanging in a hallway and the fragment of a song Half-remembered names and faces But to whom do they belong? When you knew that it was over You were suddenly aware That the autumn leaves were turning To the colour of her hair A circle in a spiral A wheel within a wheel Never ending or beginning On an ever-spinning reel As the images unwind Like the circles that you find In the windmills of your mind 
The French lyric by uh, Eddie Manet, uh, who... Well, he did the... He translated our lyric. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's not... It's not not. It's not as interesting. No. Moulin de Moncoeur is not as interesting. That's right. It's thought. not the windmills of your heart, you know. No, <laughs> no. no. And, it, and he was a very uh, successful and... Oh, very, and very nice poet. man. Yeah. We no, knew him. No, no. Yeah. While we're on the subject of things that got lost in translation, uh, Marilyn described windmills to me as like trying to fall asleep at night, but your brain's too alert and... Uh, vague, blurry shapes come cascading through and always descending deeper and darker as the circular imagery turns linear. Uh, quote, like a tunnel that you follow to a tunnel of its own, down a hollow to a cavern where the sun has never shone. Uh, that rhymes in American English, but not in Britannic English. And Noel Harrison, the son of Rex Harrison, was British, and he sang Sean. So Alan and Marilyn corrected him. Uh, Harrison was unimpressed. In the new world, the sun has never shone, but in the old country, the sun has never shone. It's our language, said Harrison. But it's our song, replied the Bergmans. On the record, you can hear who won that one. I'm a purist about rhyme, but I kind of sort of quite like own Sean as one of those half rhymes you get in a lot of uh, ancient poetry. Um, at any rate, uh, Noel Harrison was eventually shown how to do it, or Sean how to do it, by his fellow British subject, Dusty Springfield. Like a tunnel that you follow To a tunnel of its own Down a hollow to a cavern Where the sun has never shone Like a door that keeps revolving In a half-forgotten dream Or the ripples from a pebble Someone tosses in a stream Like a clock whose hands are sweeping Past the minutes of its face the world is like an apple whirling silently in space like the circles that you find in the windmills of your mind dusty springfield music by michelle legrand words by alan and marilyn bergman from the late norman jurison's fabulous film uh, the thomas crown affair like the circles that you find in the tree rings of your mind, where mean looks from encounters in a grocery store 12 years ago circle around the tree rings of your mind, looming larger and larger as your cause for action. Mark Stein, live around the planet. It is 22 to 4, Deep State Standard Time, here in Washington, D.C. That is 22 to 9, Greenwich Mean Time. A little behind, a lot ahead, according to where you chance to be on this turbulent earth. Let's get back to your questions. Amy Torno says, even though I'm a new club member... Well, I thank you for that, Amy. Welcome to the club, and I hope uh, 
uh, we're all going to get a chance to know you a lot better in uh, the year ahead. Uh, you say, even though I'm a new club member, I feel like we're old friends and praying for you every day as you go through this trial. If you heard about the razor wire controversy, I I, this word came up in court the other day, and uh, as I started saying it, I, uh, I got all confused as to whether controversy or controversy, which one is the uh, American version and which one is the uh, British version, just to go back to what we were talking about, re windmills of your mind. I got all confused uh, about it, and uh, I still can't remember now which one is what. I used to be very good at that. That's, that's one reason why I, w I was allowed to just cruise around the world operating with impunity, because I knew when to say tomato and when to say tomato. Um, anyway, Amy says... Uh, if you heard about the razor wire controversy or controversy going on here in Texas, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the subject. This gets back to what we were talking about earlier, the Supreme Court uh, decision. Uh, uh, and um, a sort of uh, they it's been reported as where as taking advantage of a loophole and uh, the decision by John Roberts and Amy Comey, Coney Barrett and the three lefty judges uh, gives the federal government the power to cut down the razor wire put up by the state government. But it doesn't actually enjoin the state government from putting up more razor wire. Uh, so Governor Abbott says, okay, fine, you come and cut down our razor wire, we're going to put up more razor wire. You get, then you cut that down, we're going to put up uh, a, a third bit of razor wire. And then you cut that, that down, we're going to get a fourth. Because actually razor wire is pretty cheap. Uh, and it's certainly cheaper than the manpower required to come in and cut it down every time. This is what these guys could be doing uh, because the, the federal guys can have all the time in the world to do that because they no longer have to f f uh, enforce the border. Uh, the, the great existential question, as always, and again, it's fun because it's a sort of legalistic argument which appeals to... Uh, time wasters who want to live in legalisms <laughs> and one one thing after you've been in a 12-year court case <laughs> that's one thing you are uh, eventually weary of uh, especially over an existential question because as I've said oh the example I always give is Norway because Trump is reputed to have said why do we have all these people from bleephole countries uh, why don't we get any immigrants from Norway? And as I pointed out, uh, Norway's, you know, five million people. So if everybody in Norway moved to the United States, which they have absolutely no reason to do, it would be less than the number of people who have come in since uh, whatever it was, January 20th, uh, 2021, three years when Joe Biden decided to open the border. It doesn't have to go on long until it becomes transformative. You know, uh, you think that MS-13 is some Latin American gang thing, and then you discover that it's halfway up the Taconic State Parkway in upstate New York, 
Uh, so just the kind of uh, hour and a half from the Canadian border, because it doesn't. A border problem doesn't stay at the border. It seeps inwards until it destroys every state. Now you think about it. How many? Again, that's why the left wants to get rid of the electoral college, because half a million people in Wyoming count for nothing. That's that's I think about uh, how, uh, how. Let me work this out. It's a million. I think it's a million every four months that Biden's letting in. So that's basically the entire population. If they had just a straight up and down vote for um, president. Uh, the entire population of Wyoming would be outpunched by two months of uh, uh, of the open border at the Rio Grande. It's an existential. It's not even a particularly American question. The same thing with Canada. Uh, Justin Trudeau uh, has opened the borders. He uh, he wants he, he's basically he wants to destroy the remnants of old stock Canada. Uh, same thing with Boris Johnson, who never had any interest in, uh, never had any interest in the immigration question. Uh, so a, a conservative party that was, that won the Brexit referendum because of its, uh, be, because of the immigration question, then immediately opens the southern border, does nothing about it, comes up with stupid schemes that are uh, designed, virtually designed to be struck down by some court or other, uh, then then you have uh, what uh, Hillary Clinton and David Cameron uh, did to Libya, which means that all the ports uh, on the southern side of the Mediterranean are basically, call, uh, basically controlled by jihadists who are perfectly happy just to ship people across to Italy and thence to Germany and Scandinavia. And so all Western nations are being destroyed by immigration. David Frost, Lord Frost, wrote a very good piece about this. You know, you've seen him on uh, RGB News iteration of the Mark Stein show uh, several times. He wrote a very good piece on this in The Telegraph beginning uh, just a week ago, actually, beginning uh, by citing my line. Uh, the future belongs to people who show up. And he said, now we're beginning to have a conversation about mass immigration. It's a little bit late uh, to start beginning to have the conversation because it is all, uh, similar, similarly with Ireland. I was talking to my chums, Anne and Phelim, who are doing their fabulous daily podcast from the Stein trial. And I was talking about the last time I was in Navan. I was uh, driving from, uh, I think this was, was it last year or the year before? I was driving from Enniskillen to Dublin uh, to catch a plane. And so uh, uh, I was going to the continent, forget where I was going now, but I drove from Enniskillen to Dublin. So it means you drive across the Irish border. And I stopped in Navan, a town I knew very well as a child and as a young man, which I hadn't been in for a few years, I was absolutely shocked by the number of uh, what they call visible minorities. I mean, again, Ireland has just opened the borders. They say, oh, we had 800 years of difficulties uh, between Catholics and Protestants, between the Irish and the English. 
but uh, letting in uh, a, 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 munch, a bunch of uh, Somalis and, uh, and, and other Muslims, that's going to be a breeze. They, there's not going to be any complications like that that we had with the English. This will all go swell. Uh, it's basically uh, uh, around the entire Western world, this madness. It's an existential threat. And in a lot of countries, it is way too late uh, to do anything about it. Um, Pete Procopio says, Mark, your query into the acknowledgments, man included. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I, I'll come back to you, Pete. But I want to make sure, because we always like to get new members in, and Matt Childs is a new member. He says, Mark, I'm now a Stein Club member after years of freeloading. Sorry, I've been joyfully listening to you. We're glad to have you with us, Matt. I've been joyfully listening to you since your guest hosting days on Rush. Your humor, quick wit, and encyclopedic knowledge of history and culture are a rare combination that I really value. You often say that we should seek to create a climate. I don't seek to create the climate. I leave the creation of the climate to Michael E. Mann and his friends. I don't, I don't create any climate. If I could, I would certainly put a new climate in courtroom 518 of the District of Columbia Superior Court. So I'm not the guy creating the climate. That's the plaintiff. Um, you often say that we should seek to create a climate where politicians of all stripes feel obliged to modify to the conservative position. Could you expand on that a bit and also give some examples of where you think that has worked? To my mind, I think Christopher Rufo has had some success in changing the public's awareness of the insanity and rot of many leftist institutions. Last, would you be willing to share a humorous or otherwise special anecdote you could recall about Rush? I find myself missing Rush more and more these days, and I often wonder how he would weigh in on uh, on current events. That's, that's the thing that the left, you know, they, whenever the left write about Rush, they always go, Rush Limbaugh spewing hatred. Rush was one of the funniest guys in the world. He, he had a naturally funny way of looking at things. And, uh, and I knew that from the moment I first heard about him, which I've talked about a bit when I was just driving through the woods with some uh, lefty friends who were visiting me from London in the early 90s. I, I just bought my pad in New Hampshire. Uh, I didn't know Rush. I'd never heard him, and they certainly didn't. And... Uh, the radio station had died, whatever it was, it's soft and easy favorites. It's the only radio station you can get in there, that part of the world, because it comes from the top of Mount Washington. And so we, the, it had, the, the, the thing had just been circling over and over and over automatically to try and pick up something. And it came to rush. And he's, uh, he's going on about the arts and croissant crowd taking up your town. We, and as I said, my friends didn't agree with him politically, but we were just like riding along, having the best time of our lives laughing. And, and the thing about Rush is that stayed all the way to the end. So I'll tell you, that was the first time. Uh, right at the end, because we're coming up to the third anniversary of his death, 
uh, Rush always used to put down the guest host. So, uh, so whenever you talk about the guest host, he'd be going, you don't need to li listen to them. Take some time off. <laughs> Enjoy your kids or whatever. Uh, and uh, you're probably wondering why we don't do a lot of promotion of them uh, at rushlingmill.co. They've all got faces for radio and all this. He would always be doing this thing. And um, when I heard about his uh, cancer diagnosis and when he announced it on air, and I had to do the most, one of the most difficult shows I've ever had to do and do the following day's show. And I just uh, spoke from my heart about Rush, who was a, a great man, a kind man, a generous man. And uh, uh, so I sat in for him a couple of days later because he, he went off to do the thing with Trump in, uh, in Congress, whatever it was, the State of the Union. And so he comes back uh, the following day or a day or two later and he starts talking about how touched he was about uh, what I'd had to say. And I was... Um, I was shocked because one of the things I'd come to love was Rush putting down the guest host. I just, I think it was just so cool. It was way cooler to be put down by Rush than to have him start saying how uh, heartwarming and touching it was to, to hear what I had to say. And, uh, and so I was on a day or two later and... Um, uh, and uh, I said I couldn't, I couldn't take any more of this Rush being nice about me, the, the crappy, worthless guest host. And I wanted him to get back to the real Rush, who was always putting down the guest host. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and Rush uh, was kind enough to say that that gave him one of his biggest laughs um, at a time when you know there were there were not a lot of laughs. He just he was one of those guys who had a naturally funny way of looking at the world. You're talking about my point, which is really Milton Friedman's point, where you don't wait for the right man to do the right thing. You create the conditions whereby the wrong men are forced to do the right things. Uh, and you you asked me if I uh, if I had an example, I would give the example one that I lived through and was very well aware of was when Canada had the, the old squishy Conservative Party broke up, as many of you will know, and was reduced to just two seats in whatever it was, the 1993 election. Kim Campbell reduced uh, Canada's number two party to just two seats in Parliament. And, as a, uh, and one consequence of that was that a new right-wing party based in the West, the Reform Party of uh, Preston Manning, uh, arose. And it never uh, entered government, or at least not until it merged with a new kind of Tory party. But throughout the 1990s, it was powerful enough uh, to keep the Canadian Liberal government uh, on its toes and force it to do things like pay down the debt. Imagine that. 
How about that for you Americans? In, in Washington, Democrats and Republicans just ramp up the... Oh, we've achieved another successful negotiation for a rise in the debt ceiling. Um, and instead in Canada, uh, because the Reform Party kept certain ideas in play, uh, the Liberals were obliged to sort of defer to them and, um, uh, and, and actually start paying down the debt. You could look at uh, Tipper Gore's, you know, everybody seems to think that it's, the, uh, it's Nancy Reagan who just doesn't want the kids listening to the rap lyrics or, or whatever. But in fact, that was done. It was still possible to persuade uh, Democrats to get on board, particularly culturally. And I'll give you another example from the 1990s. Because I remember talking uh, talking about this with American commentators, that if you recall, this is when Giuliani became mayor of New York and Newt Gingrich did the contract with America. You remember that? Um, or even if you don't remember that, ask your grandfather. But the point about that was that if you look at the TV commercials from that time, nobody mentioned the, the, uh, the, the, the right kept ideas, particularly cultural ideas, in play so effectively that, uh, that uh, come, come election time, uh, you could not tell from Democrat ads that they were Democrats. They'd always say, yeah, uh, yeah, Fred Smith, he's tough on crime. He knows what's needed to put the criminals behind bars. Because uh, the uh, right had the left playing defense on those issues in the Giuliani, Newt Gingrich era. Uh, and, so, uh, and so nobody wanted to mention the word Democrat in their ads and nobody uh, wanted to actually run on so-called Democrat issues. You remember Bill Clinton went, uh, went back to Arkansas to fry some guy because he needed to look, you know, tough on crime. And now, uh, there's, since the whole George Floyd thing, it's the complete opposite of that because conservative ideas are generally so ineffectual in America, even in a crime spree, uh, the Democrats are still running on opening up the jail. And in fact, you know, one of the dumber moves that Trump made because he listened to his kids um, was, uh, you know, when you've got a crime spree, he's on stage with Biden and boasting about all the people he's letting out of prison. So what's not clear to me since now I agree with you about Christopher Rufo and I would also remind you of what my friend Ava Valardingerbroke said on one of our shows uh, a few months back, but which I think is true, that the transgender madness is the one, uh, is a sort of gateway opening uh, to, to persuading people away from the conventional wisdom. You know, Ava is Dutch. The Dutch as a nation are very liberal, although, as you know, uh, uh, our friend Hit Wilders uh, just won that e e election a few months ago. But Ava says that when you're talking with Europeans, continentals, that 
the the transgender thing because it's it's a very wide you can do it with some people but it's a huge leap for a woman to be at her health club in the showers showering off and there's some six foot five quote woman hung like a stallion showering next to her that's a that's a huge leap for most people and Ava made the point that in fact it's the one thing particularly particularly when you start talking about mutilating schoolgirls and all the rest of it but she says that's the one thing uh, that that is the easy one of the easiest for people to change their minds about um, so I think it is I think it is I certainly think it is possible and I certainly think you know there's a there's two things going on here one a lot of people are getting rich from the crap they're not even getting rich but making a nice living from it uh, which is so it require you have to have a certain amount which wasn't true so much uh, when I was talking about the Canadian Liberal Party 30 years ago. And, sir, uh, and again, we're up against, oh, you can elect them on that platform because uh, Italians voted for Georgia Maloney because they want to stop the mass immigration. And then for whatever reason, uh, according to my friend James Dellingpole, it's because they've got compromat on all these people. Uh, once she got into office, Georgia Maloney started backpedaling and all that. So it's a slightly more difficult thing we have to do now because there is a, a clear, permanent globalist establishment. And again, waving the U.S. Constitution doesn't help because it doesn't mean anything. Because these guys all fly into Davos and they're part of a club. And below the, you know, countries, what we used to call nation states, are just places they fly over. And it doesn't matter whether that's Canada, it doesn't matter whether that's Germany, it doesn't matter whether that's New Zealand, and it even doesn't matter even if it's America. To this crowd, they're just places they fly over. And that is a different problem and a different uh, and a different uh, scale of uh, problem. Uh, let's. Alison <laughs> uh, uh, Castellita says Machiavellian lawyers indulge in all sorts of black talk to scare and threaten their opponents. My impression is that those types frequently say things like, will your client be around for the appeal or will your client still be around for the court's judgment saying he has a very serious illness while entirely forgetting about their own inevitable judgment. However depressing it all feels right now, this is not the end of the story. Even if justice is not done on this earth, it is done in eternity. Yes, it is very hard to appeal from that judgment uh, because that guy outpunches even Chief Justice Roberts. Dr. Roy, Roy Epen says, uh, Hi Mark, your performance at your trial is amazing. When man loses, will there be an appeal? Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Roy. I would love uh, to be in uh, Montreal with you right now. I, I, I hope I will uh, eventually uh, 
be uh, back in Quebec. Uh, you say when man loses, will there be an appeal? As I answered earlier, what's so insane about this is even if man wins, he's going to appeal it because he wants to get the other guys back in the case, do it all over again. This is the judge keeps saying, oh, we have to do this for the appeal. And the lawyers keep saying, it's almost like they've moved on from the trial. They've lost interest in it. And the judge and the lawyers all just keep referring to the appeal now. It's very, very, dis it's very, very depressing. Uh, that Jennifer Price says, how can anyone say they were stared at malevolently in a supermarket by an unknown and expect anyone to believe anything he says? Keep your health. Seems this effort physically is borderline. But thank you for fighting the battle for all of us. Best wishes, Jenny and Terry from sunny Littlehampton. Thank you for that, Jennifer. Uh, um, uh, Ken Merry goes, Hi Mark, I'm enjoying your court appearance via video and hope your health improves. Why do they go silent when arguing a point over a challenge? This is one of the big, uh, I take it Ken is from a Commonwealth country because it's this objections is a very American thing. Uh, I remember once a, a trial, uh, Ezra Levant was the defendant uh, in Ontario Superior Court and on the day uh, Ezra took the stand. It basically, Ezra just went up, sat in the witness box, and talked for the whole day, except for the break for lunch. So he like sits there chit chatting, <laughs> and we all just sit there listening to him. And then after uh, you know uh, three hours or whatever, Judge Wendy uh, uh, says, uh, "Okay, uh, we'll take a lunch break now." And then we all come back from lunch, and he starts chit-chatting for two, three, four hours again, without objection. All that happens in uh, English courts uh, and, uh, you know, and Canadian courts and Jamaican courts and whatever is that the judge will uh, sometimes lean over and, uh, and say, uh, I think you're wandering a little far afield, Mr. Stein, or whatever, and you take the hint and get back on track. But here, everything is, you got these speed bumps every 45 seconds, and they do it for that reason. Lawyers leaping up, shout, objection, objection. And the legalistic arguments, which are for the judge and not the jury, uh, that's why they, uh, they mute the thing and the judge hears them. And it's not a very good system there, because as the judge, it all dissolved on Friday, because the judge claimed that when the other guys objected, I talked too loud, and uh, the jury were able to hear me. And, you know, it's not my job to design a bloody uh, courtroom audio system, your lordship, is it? So that's more bollocks. You know, it's the capital city of the global hyperpower. And oh, oh gosh, we've got this uh, foreign chappy. <laughs> and the jury's, uh, and the jury's able to hear during the, it's, it's not my job to design the District of Columbia Superior Court audio system, but it's mostly boring stuff on think well I'll tell you a bit about it I guess because uh, uh, it, it's in order to admit something in evidence you have to have somebody who can authenticate what it is uh, 
Um, so, for example, if uh, I, I'm trying to think of something, uh, that if you have, say, a painting that you want to introduce in evidence, uh, you have to have either the painter or the owner of the painting there to authenticate that that's what it is. Um, and there's a slight exception to that. There's a so-called public records exception, which is that if it is uh, something like a, uh, a, 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 a law passed in a state legislature, that, that is allowed to be introduced without someone to authenticate it because it's a public record and is self-evidently what it is. Now, uh, with this stuff, we've got all these various reports, so-called reports, on Michael Mann, uh, and the question is whether they are uh, self-authenticating. Uh, there's like a document, I think, from some stupid American agency beginning with N, as I've been testifying about all week, uh, but it doesn't actually mention ban by name or the hockey stick or anything like that. And it's not even clear, uh, really, that it's a, it meets the definition of a public record. So they're trying to find some guy who can authenticate it or whatever. And then there's all these UK reports that, again, don't mention man and don't mention... And these things are not do not meet the public record definition under the laws of England, which are basically uh, confined to ministerial departments, the reports of ministerial departments and executive agencies, uh, such as the National Health Service or uh, other bodies that report direct to the Crown, you know, such as the British Army or whatever. And the idea that something that's not a public record in the country it's issued in becomes a public record simply by, putting on, by being put on a plane to Dulles Airport is completely fatuous. So it's all these, again, it's what I call, to use the technical term, wanker legalisms. And that is what my life is, unfortunately, at the moment. Uh, Mark Sides, Club Lad Cured. Actually, uh, my, I'm pretty wiped out and I've got terrible shortness of breath and everything. Um, but I've actually I've rather enjoyed being here uh, for the last hour and a bit. Uh, I'd rather talk to you than uh, talk to lawyers and judges. That is certainly true. And after this last fortnight, uh, I thought I could do with something peppy, something to put a real spring in your step. 100 years ago, uh, January 19th, 1924, Al Jolson went into the studio and made the first recording of a number he just interpolated into his hit Broadway show, Bombo. It's a fabulous song, a hymn to what was then truly a golden state. California, here I come, right back where I started from, where flowers of flowers bloom in the sun. Each morning, that dawning bird is singing everything a sun kiss, kiss, and don't be late. That's why I can hardly wait. Open up your golden gate, California, here I come. 
Aisham Jones's orchestra. I love Aisham Jones. He's the composer of It Had To Be You, Swinging Down The Lane on the Alamo. He didn't write that song, but he had two of the guys who did performing on the record. Buddy De Silva played the ukulele and his alleged co-writer Al Jolson sang it. Although he blew the rhyme of his own song which is an odd thing to do. The last of the trio was Joseph Ma, who was born in Modesto, uh, California. Maybe they should have had him on that record because it was a number one hit that nevertheless, for my tastes, comes out a little sluggish there for such a high energy song. But Jolson spent the next quarter century getting ever more peppy with it. Give me that train song intro. Here's Morris Stoloff's great arrangement for the Jolson story. When the wintry winds start blowing and the snow is starting in a fall, then my eyes turn westward knowing that's the place that I love best of all. California, I've been blue since I've been away from you. I can't wait till I get going even now, I'm starting in a call California, here I come Right back where I started from Where bowers of flowers bloom in the spring Each morning, that dawning bird is sing And everything, a sun kiss me said Don't be late That's why I can hardly wait Open up that golden gate, California, here I come. Orchestra and the arrangement used in the 1946 blockbuster film The Jolson Story. Al had a terrific deal on that picture. 50% of the profits went to him. Oh, we can't leave it there. There have been various efforts to make California Here I Come the official state song of California. But let's face it, today's stinker of a totally non-golden state is entirely unworthy of such a fabulous anthem. Nobody roars, open up that golden gate to get to a third world homeless encampment run by Gavin Newsom. So it's a song for a lost America. 
Here's Al Jolson live. I doubt anybody listening has heard this before. Uh, Al Jolson live at the opening of the new Arrowhead Springs Resort in the San Bernardino Mountains on December 16th. 1939. Give me that train song intro again, but this time hold the verse. California, here I come, right back where I started from, where bowers of flowers bloom in the spring. Each morning at dawning, pretty sing and everything the sun just misses. Don't be late. Come on, open up that golden gate, California, here I come. When the wintry winds start blowing and the snow is starting in a fall, then my eyes turn westward knowing that's the place that I love best of all. California, I've been blue since I've been away from you. Even now, I'm starting in a call, oh, California, here I come, right back where I started from, with flowers, a flower bloom in the spring, each morning, a dawning birdie sing, and everything, a sun kiss this head, don't be late, that's why I can hardly wait, come on, open up, open up, that golden gate, California, here I at the Arrowhead Springs Resort in 1939, California. Here I come. Don't try that at home, boys and girls. A song that's 100 years old this very month, but a song that has outlived its subject. In the real California, they're all singing, Texas, here I come, I'm out of here. McGuinness on the movie beat Stein Song of the Week. And then we're back in court. Don't miss Amy K. Mitchell's Evening Court Reports and Anne McElhenney and Phelan McAleer's Daily Podcasts. And don't forget our limited edition Stein Online Liberty Sticks. Every one of them is signed and numbered by me. 
But don't leave it too late, they're going fast, and when they're gone, they're gone. unforgettable week on the Mark Stein Caribbean cruise. Stay safe, stay free, stay well, stay out of court. Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.